Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this morning's online forum session of IPS Singapore Perspective 2022 entitled CT. My name is Harry Tan, Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies, and I'm your moderator this morning. Before I start the session and introduce our panelists, please allow me to run through some quick administrative matters. Please submit your questions for the panelists via the question submission section on this forum page. You can do this at any time during the session. We invite all at our conference to contribute to our discussion in a respectful and safe manner, focused on the issues at hand. IPS reserves the right to act in a way to ensure that this is always the case in all of the chat or Q&A functions on our conference site. A gentle reminder also to everyone that this online forum is open for media coverage. Finally, the Urban Redevelopment Authority would like to invite everybody to take part in an online poll. URA is in the midst of a year-long public engagement exercise to gather ideas and views on Singapore's long-term land use, needs and strategies. As part of this long-term plan review, do take part in this poll shown right now on the right side of your screen. With that, let's begin this forum. The theme for this forum session is city as an inclusive space. Cities, particularly global cities like London, Tokyo, New York, Hong Kong, and Singapore, just to name a few, are strategic sites for the management of the world economy and the production of the most advanced services and financial operations that are key to global economic operations. Global cities are not only the world of top-level transnational and local managers and professionals, but also the world of builders, domestic helpers, and the cleaners cleaning the office buildings and homes in these cities. A low-wage workforce increasingly made up of foreigners and minoritized citizens. It is therefore not a surprise that global cities have often been associated with high levels of inequality, contestations and claims made by multiple social groups, neighborhoods, and so on. For scholars, policymakers, and urban planners, the challenge then is to ensure that cities remain inclusive and livable for its people. Yet, what makes a city inclusive? and livable, and how can we build such cities? Could Singapore become a more inclusive and livable city for its people? These are some questions we hope to be able to address in this forum. To do that, we are very privileged to have with us a wonderful panel of speakers and discussing. Our first speaker is Professor Saskia Sassen. Professor Sasson is the Robert S. Lynn Professor of Sociology at Columbia University. She's the student, she is a student of cities, immigration, and states in the world economy. Professor Sasson is also the author of eight books and several edited volumes. Her authored books are also translated in over 20 
languages. Because of time zone differences, Professor Sasson is unfortunately not able to join us this morning. She has, however, kindly pre-recorded her opening remarks for us. So sit back and enjoy. It's a great pleasure for me to have this opportunity to talk with, uh, with people to an audience which uh, knows how to make cities work. I think your, um, uh, your cities are really quite better made, better thought out than the typical city we see, for instance, in Latin America or even in North America. So it is a real pleasure for me to talk with your audience. I have always enjoyed uh, talking in Singapore. I want to emphasize two or three elements. One is the whole question of transnationalism and the extent to which it is cities that are transnational, not necessarily the governments. Insofar as transnationalism becomes a critical dimension in our current mode of understanding, of analyzing, of working, etc., etc., that difference is important. Maybe 30 years ago it was not, but today it is. The fact that the city becomes the crucial actor in more and more situations, in more and more conditions, in more and more a whole variety of ways, uh, the ways in which even one block in a city is increasingly today seen as important, as uh, it's a good idea to protect it, etc., etc. There is a real sense of how the urban condition needs to be protected. And I think even 10 years ago, we did not think this way. We took it for granted in many ways. So to me, this is a very uh, interesting proposition. A second element that is uh, of, of interest to me and that I have developed quite a bit is the notion of the rise of very specialized actors, specialized capabilities, you know, specialized modes of constructing innovations. Something changed. In my reading, in the West at least, it changed, um, I don't know, maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but the change happened. In complex systems, such as a city, it is not easy to establish when exactly the change happened. Partly because, you know, there are these buildings and some of these buildings are beautiful, but they are a hundred years old. And yet they capture a new modernity. And I find that extraordinarily important that we recognize that in our modernity, there are many options. It is not like it might have been 200 years ago. Today, we can transform a city that started out as poor, as modest, as with no particular, uh, you know, shining elements and discoveries. And that same city today can be brilliant, exceptional, the hottest item. So we are moving very, very fast. Now, when it comes to global cities, which is sort of one of the subjects that I have specialized uh, on, I think that one of the features that is part of this new modernity, you know, a modernity that starts 10 years ago, again, 
maybe 15 years ago in some other situation. But it, it, is, a, it is, of course, a modernity that includes a variety of physical innovations, economic innovations, digital innovations, etc., etc. Um, transversely speaking, there is an enemy, a very significant enemy, and that enemy has to do with pandemics. I think by all by now we're all familiar with that. Why pandemics in cities? Because cities are full of good stuff that enables pandemics. They get to eat. Eat is, is a big word here. I exaggerate a bit. So we are both dealing with, in a moment, a historic moment when cities are critical actors. They, in a way, play more important functions than, um, than national level. Because the national level has such a mix of elements and most of it inside a city is likely to be very localized. Now, Singapore, you know, countries like that are, again, they are totally different. They are not this description. They are the modernity. Uh, so, but I, I'm hoping that you understand what I'm saying. Now, coming back to the pandemic, the pandemic is a test. It is a test that will tell us, did we get it right or did we not? And it's going to be, uh, in many parts of the world, a very unjust test. The poorer neighborhoods, the poorer entities, etc., they will not get the attention that the richer, the more powerful, the more important will get. So we are headed once again. It's not the first time in our, in our history of cities. But again, we will be uh, seeing divisions some do very well, they have access to all the elements they need to have access to, others do not. Others will die on the streets. We are already beginning to see that in Calcutta, we are seeing that in, in the United States, people simply dying on the street if they have been hit by the virus. So we, are, we have to be ready. And I think we who have voice, we who have an understanding of what can be done in cities, we must act. We must develop analytics that enable the average member of a city to use those analytics, to understand, okay, we're confronting a danger. Here is something that is not working. There is something that is working very well. How do we change that? In other words, the city is no longer simply the city that the, that the government of the city uh, enables and you know, protect. No, the city will very much be also our obligation, our necessity to get to understand what is working. I don't think that this is necessarily easy. What I hope and what is forever a concern is that the cities remain inclusive. We're beginning to see, we're beginning to see emerge very fancy, elegant cities that want to separate themselves from the larger city. The larger city, of course, includes all those workers that travel often long distances and that those cities depend on completely. They are the builders, they are the cleaners, they manage to the repair apparatus, etc., etc. So 
we are going to confront not a war, but a kind of confrontation that I don't know that we are so ready for it because it is a mix both of dangerous new elements and destructions of good old elements and then in between all kinds of new things. So when I think, for instance, the, the work that I have done, what I call, you know, the global cities, uh, many, we have many global cities nowadays. We have major, and Singapore is a major global city. These are sites, these are places, these cities, where all kinds of knowledges are in play. And that is very, very helpful. But we have in the world at large, most cities are smallish and poorish, small and poor, to clarify the English here. And so how do we deal with that? I do not worry about the grand cities which have massive resources, which have populations that are capable of supporting those cities. I worry about the other cities, the cities that lack that. And I think we must begin to pay attention to those other kinds of cities. And many of those cities contain within them interest, interesting architects and builders, uh, poets, writers, good universities sometimes in some of those poorer cities. So there is a whole world and the bigger world is that world. It's the world of the modest cities, the cities that are not famous. It's the world of cities that have it all, but they are very modest, that are struggling to keep it all, to keep it all in place, to keep it all going. Um, so I, I, want to, I want to conclude. I know these are very small, short talks that we're meant to give. I want to conclude with the notion uh, that I think is important that we recover that. And that is the notion that cities vary enormously. Uh, cities are marked. This is second question, second item, very important. Cities are marked by differences because cities often emerged because there was a certain kind of mining operation there. There was a certain kind of set of materials or good land to grow trees, whatever it was. But most cities are unlike all cities. It's quite extraordinary when you think about it. Yes, we all need housing, we all need toilets, we all need that. But when it's all said and done, each of those cities has its own specificity. And the specificity that I'm talking about is the specificity that enabled that city to emerge, to exist. Why? Because it was something of value. It could have been water, it could have been mining elements, whatever. It's a long list, actually, when you think about the many different types of cities that we have. But that is what it is. The cities emerge because there was an opportunity, there was a possibility, there was something that we could work on and we could work about. And I conclude, we do not want to lose that. Thank you for your attention. Well, thank you, Professor Sassen, for that masterful delivery of some of the key ideas that have by and large informed the scholarship of cities today. Perhaps the panelists um, later on could take up some of those points as well. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about as well the, the critical dimension of transnationalism that 
know, Professor Sasson mentioned, in shaping our current mode of understanding, our current mode of analyzing and working. Um, as well as the notion, I think that she talked towards, or she mentioned towards the end of her talk, um, that CTs actually vary, uh, vary enormously. They are marked by differences. And I, I know that Professor Sasson was talking about differences amongst cities, but I guess we can talk about the population in, within the city as well that are marked by differences as well. So given these differences, then how does one go about building inclusive and livable cities for all? This is where I would like to bring in our second speaker, Mr. Lim Enghui. Mr. Lim is the Chief Executive Officer of the Urban Redevelopment Authority. He was formerly Chief Planner and Deputy Chief Executive Officer of URA and has extensive experience in urban planning, urban design, implementation of land use policies, and development initiatives. Mr. Lim will touch on the practical aspects of planning and building inclusive cities, especially physical planning and land use aspects of inclusivity. Over to you, Mr. Lim. Uh, thanks, Harry. Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Hi, a uh, very good morning to everyone. Uh, thank you for having me here today at the IPS Forum on City as an Inclusive Space. Uh, I, I look forward to sharing with you about how uh, URA and many other uh, government agencies, colleagues, working together to plan for an inclusive and livable uh, Singapore. Uh, my presentation today will mostly focus on aspects uh, that are more related to land use planning in terms of how we plan for affordable housing, social community facilities, uh, and the economy, as well as how do we leverage on digital technology to achieve those outcomes. Uh, next slide, please. I would like to uh, start off by explaining why inclusivity and livability has always been an important consideration in Singapore's land use planning approach. It is because of our very unique social and fiscal context. Uh, moving on to my next slide. As we all know, uh, we are a very socially diverse uh, society. Singapore is multi-ethnic, uh, multi-religious society with people of very different uh, background, uh, different ages, different abilities, and so forth. And this makes it uh, essential that our city and neighborhoods are places where people of uh, different backgrounds can live, work, and play, and build bonds with people who are different than them in the course of their daily lives. Next slide. And uh, secondly, Singapore is also a, a small city state with limited land uh, and uh, a, a relatively high uh, density. Within our limited uh, supply of land, we must cater to a wide variety of needs from housing and amenities to offices uh, and major infrastructures and even land for military use. And this means that uh, there is a need to optimize whatever land that we have. And one of the ways we do this is by building higher where possible, make use of underground space, and overall, uh, we, uh, we have a relatively high density environment. And given these fiscal characteristics, livability has been the guiding principles in our, our land use planning approach since our first long-term concept plan in 1971. This ensures that we have sufficient land to meet our various needs and aspirations while allowing Singaporeans from uh, all backgrounds to enjoy high standards of living within a highly dense uh, environment. Next slide. Through our planning uh, process, different land use needs are comprehensively reviewed to ensure a quality living environment for everyone. 
our long-term and comprehensive approach to planning ensures that everyone living in Singapore can enjoy a highly livable environment, both now and in the future, regardless of, of which segment of society you may come from. And uh, as uh, land use planning agencies, we work with uh, many other agencies to set aside land for all our different land use needs, such as housing, the economies, parks, uh, and many other users. This is conducted through our master planning and long-term planning process, where we comprehensively review, assess, and safeguard uh, indicative quantum and distribution of land uh, that we need at the 15-year timeframe for the nearer term, as well as a longer term timeframe of uh, 50 years or even beyond. Uh, as such, in the context of uh, Singapore's urban planning approach, inclusivity can broadly be conceptualized as a livable city for all, where uh, our live, work and play spaces are adequately provided for, equitably distributed and inclusively designed. Uh, so for purpose of this presentation, I will use the term inclusivity and livability quite interchangeably. Uh, now, uh, I'll move on to the next slide. Uh, today, I would like to share how uh, URA together with our fellow uh, colleagues uh, from HDB, JTC, MPARCS and many other social community facilities agencies contribute to the inclusivity of our city in uh, four key aspects. Firstly, by providing for a variety of uh, different types of affordable housing island-wide. Secondly, by ensuring that uh, there are sufficient and well-distributed uh, social facilities, community facilities uh, across the island. And thirdly, by planning for a range of uh, different types of economic spaces at different parts of the island to increase access to job opportunities. And lastly, how we could leverage on digital technology, as uh, Prof. Sasson mentioned, uh, in achieving some of this outcome. Our, uh, next slide, please. I'll start uh, with how the government is providing a great, greater variety of affordable housing typologies. In more recent years, a greater variety of uh, flat types and housing policies have been introduced to respond to trends such as an increase in the proportion of elderlies and singles. This include the introduction of assisted living typologies for seniors, short lease two-room flexi flats, as well as policy shifts to provide more HDB options for singles. The government is also introducing more affordable housing in prime areas through the recently announced prime location public housing model, where the first pilot at Roadshow, which will also include public rental housing. In addition, uh, to ensure that our housing estates remain inclusive to people of uh, different social economic backgrounds, more integrated uh, housing, housing blocks, HDB blocks, that mixes uh, rental and purchase flats are in the pipeline. Next slide. Uh, uh, I will next share about how we plan uh, for our social and community facilities and how we uh, try to integrate vulnerable groups with the society uh, through new co-located uh, typologies. To ensure that uh, there are sufficient uh, social uh, economic, uh, sorry, to ensure that there are sufficient social and community facilities such as medical healthcare facilities, senior care facilities, childcare centers, and social services, we have worked uh, with agencies to develop a social and community facilities master plan. This maps out the quantum and distribution of social community facilities to be staged island-wide over the next 10-15 years based on agencies' uh, understanding of the ground needs and also the projected demand over time. This is reviewed annually, uh, and we have also developed town demography modeling uh, to help size up future demand, take stock of residents' changing needs to assess if amenities should be repurposed uh, or new facilities introduced to meet the new and evolving uh, changes and requirements. So for instance, if a town is likely uh, going to have more elderly household, 
we want to ensure that there are sufficient elder care facilities, including the possibility of converting some of the childcare to elder care facilities where, uh, where uh, it is possible and where the demography of the town has changed. In this way, the data analytic is harnessed to improve the right sighting, right sizing, and right timing of social facilities. In addition, we have also rolled out uh, new co-located typologies that uh, try to integrate specialized facilities with community facilities so that vulnerable groups can also be well integrated with the society. Just a couple of examples uh, shown on the uh, slide here. Uh, Kampong and Melty, the picture on the top right. Uh, uh, this is uh, the first HDB project to integrate senior care housing with supporting elder care facilities alongside childcare facilities and other community facilities like a hawker center. So together they offer a wide range of facilities and amenities for both young and old in the community so that our seniors can continue to be well integrated into the community even as they age in place. A second example is an Abling village, which is the picture below the Kampong uh, Admiralty. And this is also the first community space in Singapore dedicated to integrating people with disability into the society. It combines retail lifestyle stores as well as training uh, facilities for disabled members uh, of the community in an all accessible public space which are open to the general public so that uh, they can uh, in intermingle with one another. Uh, next slide. We also ensure a sufficient provision of parks and public spaces for everyone to enjoy and to meet with uh, one another. As part of the Singapore Green Plan 2030 announced in February last year, every household in Singapore will be within a 10 minutes walk from a park by 2030, less than 10 years time. And this means that every household, regardless of the type of house they live in, will have access to a park very near to their homes in future. Some of our parks also have inclusive features uh, such as therapeutic gardens, which are specially programmed for seniors and children uh, with special needs. We have also planned for public spaces in our neighborhoods and even in the city center and work with the community groups to activate these uh, spaces. These are free for all to enjoy, ensuring that our city centers, our neighborhoods remains inclusive, whether or not you work, in, you, you work or live there, and that our neighborhoods have spaces for chance encounters and community bonding. Next. Moving on uh, to how we plan for the economy, uh, we try to provide for a range of economic spaces to ensure that variety of uh, job opportunities are accessible across the island as we recognize that uh, an equitable distribution of job is important to uh, spatial inclusivity and livability. Our economic uh, uh, land use uh, that has been set aside caters for a range of economic spaces from spaces for offices, research, to areas that are uh, more uh, cater for more heavier industrial activities. Uh, these working spaces are distributed across the island in a polycentric manner uh, to bring a variety of jobs, whether they are uh, global companies, small businesses in the manufacturing services sector closer to home. And accessibility to jobs is supported by public transport uh, system. Our LTA has set aside a target, uh, set a target uh, for nine out of 10 peak hour commutes to be completed within 45 minutes, including the journey between home and workplaces uh, to enhance accessibility for everyone. Uh, through flexible zoning, uh, which supports mixed of uh, users, we also bring a greater variety or diversity of uh, people and user into our com commercial and employment uh, nodes. This enhances both the vibrancy and inclusivity of our places of work. Next. The last uh, aspect that I would like to uh, touch on is how the government agencies are tapping on technology and data to enhance livability. 
Technology has enabled uh, changes in our lives, including more inclusive public service delivery for vulnerable groups. Uh, one of the example, uh, our smart home system uh, in newer HDB estates, where, where, uh, which can be tailored to the needs of the elderly. So for instance, the elderly monitoring, monitoring systems learns the habit of the seniors through motion sensors and alerts caregivers in times of need when there's an irregular behavior. This enables our seniors to continue living independently uh, in the places they are very familiar. Data analytics also uh, is also used by uh, URA and agencies to glean insights on areas such as population, mobility, uh, amenities, and economy to better plan uh, to serve the needs of our residents. So for instance, uh, in planning for active mobility infrastructure, uh, the analysis of EasyLink card data can allow us to better understand commuters' travel patterns to identify routes uh, where there will likely be a higher demand for us to prioritize where to put in the right infrastructure. Uh, more recently, the, during the COVID uh, uh, pandemic past few years, uh, we have also extended our capabilities to support uh, some of these uh, COVID uh, recovery efforts. This includes a, a space out website, uh, which, we, which we launched to provide public with real-time updates on the cloud level across Singapore in the mall, supermarkets and attractions. At the same time, we are also aware that technology also brings about potential divides in terms of digital access and technology know-how. Uh, there are various ongoing efforts to bridge this digital divide. This includes IMDA's government's digital access program, which equips low-income household students and persons with disabilities with digital tools. Next. And uh, look, looking ahead, what I've uh, ju just shared is what uh, agencies are doing today. Uh, as URA takes a very long-term approach to planning, we also need to think about how we can continue to ensure that our city remains inclusive and livable in the future uh, amidst an environment that is increasingly volatile. Next. Our long-term plan review uh, 2021, uh, as Harry mentioned earlier, uh, is right now underway. And to prepare us for the road ahead, we've embarked on this uh, review with our partner agencies and Singaporeans to envision what Singapore could look like in the next 50 years and how to achieve this outcome. The review is, has a greater focus on being resilient and flexible to ensure that our future generations have options and can remain responsive to global uncertainties and opportunities. It also takes into account future trends that could affect our city's inclusivity uh, and livability. This includes the deepening of existing social fault lines, uh, a new form of uh, identity politics, evolving socioeconomic trends like aging uh, society and an increase in singles, climate change uh, challenges, potential pandemics, uh, that could affect our built environment and quality of life and uh, emerging technological trends that could also change the way we plan for spaces. Next. To better understand how we can plan for a future Singapore that is inclusive and livable for all segments of our society, we have engaged very widely to gather Singaporeans' ideas and aspirations for our future city, as well as identify potential trade-offs. Some of the feedback, if I could uh, just very briefly uh, summarize, uh, and, and some of the ideas pertaining to inclusivity and livability that have been raised in our uh, engagement so far include uh, the call for provision of more housing types and options for uh, diverse group of people, including single, elderly, migrant workers, non-traditional families. Another feedback is that uh, th th there's a need to address better spatial distribution of affordable housing, less socioeconomic segregation between neighborhoods, and better accessibility to jobs and social networks. 
And uh, another uh, uh, important point that was highlighted uh, is that the participation uh, uh, highlighted how the COVID pandemic has uh, emphasized uh, or showed to us the importance of having parks, essential amenities and flexible spaces closer to where people live. At the same time, participants also recognize that some of these ideas would come with trade-offs. So for instance, aspiration to widen housing access to more de demographic uh, segments alongside the trends of increasing number of uh, smaller households uh, means that uh, it could lead to an increase in demand for housing. And this could in turn uh, uh, mean needing to find uh, more land, uh, new land or building at even higher densities uh, as we uh, develop. So as we start our next phase of the engagement this month, we will be converging on the long-term land use strategies, uh, discuss potential trade-offs and considerations uh, that have been gathered, uh, which will then uh, go towards shaping the long-term plan 2021. So uh, before I come to the end of my presentation, if I can go to the last slide, I'd like to uh, again uh, repeat what Harry mentioned earlier, uh, invite you to scan the QR code, visit the link uh, on the slide to learn more about the ongoing review. And we, you can also share your views and feedback on Singapore's long-term land use plan through this link. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Lim, for that insightful and very comprehensive presentation and highlighting that land use and physical planning in a city are crucial elements that build inclusivity and livability in other important aspects as well, such as the social culture, the economic, the digital technology spaces of our, of our city. Finally, I'd like to introduce our discussion for this panel, Associate Professor Irene Ng. Professor Ng is, a, is an associate professor in the Department of Social Work and Social Service Research Center at the National University of Singapore. Her research areas include poverty and inequality, intergenerational mobility, and social welfare policies. Professor Ng serves and has served in committees in the Ministry of Social and Family Development, National Council of Social Services, Ministry of Manpower, and various social service agencies. Professor Irene, over to you. Thank you, Harry. I feel humbled to be included as a discussant in this panel with Professor Sassen and Chief Executive Mr. Lim. Thank you very much, IPS, and I hope my little sharing adds value to the discussion. Well, I think it's clear that Singapore is a role model of city planning that is inclusive of diverse ranges of backgrounds, for instance, in terms of ethnicity and religion, and Mr. Lim has outlined some fantastic examples. For example, the Housing Development Board, and particularly, um, we could perhaps highlight the ethnic integration policy. Even with criticism of it, with regard to unequal resale value, the ethnic integration policy illustrates intention in our urban planning policy to be ethnically inclusive. I think we can find few other such intentionality in policy design in the world today. Um, another example highlighted by Mr. Lim that I find noteworthy is our community spaces and facilities. Instances of this include our parks, community centres, public libraries, which are open for people from all walks of life, as Mr. Lim has pointed out. Again, we can find few examples of such in other cities. Yet with all these, for me as a poverty researcher and social worker, I also find that at Singapore's current state of development, we need a stepped up level of inclusive city planning. Here, it might help to start with the definition of inclusivity. From a general policy perspective, inclusivity means including different communities or cultures of the population. From a social work angle, however, 
Inclusivity also means including the most excluded in society who tends to be overlooked. For example, I used to do at-risk youth outreach in a low-income neighborhood. In that neighborhood, there was a community center and also a tuition center run by the Chinese Development Assistance Council, CDAC. But where did we find the youths? In the basketball court between these two centers playing street soccer at night. Sure, there were youths playing basketball in the community center and youths who attended tuition at CDAC, but the youths we found were school dropouts or youths at risk of dropout. They didn't mix with the youths who played at the community center and didn't feel belonged there. That was in the 1990s, and I think we're now a bit better at reaching out to at-risk youths. But I give this example to illustrate how we need to build into our policies inclusivity of the most vulnerable and excluded. Our forefathers were radical in their times in emphasizing inclusivity for all races and cultures. Now we are in an increasingly unequal world and Singapore society has become wealthy yet stratified. Earlier, Minister Ong Yi Kung also spoke of inequality as one of the challenges in cities today. Thus, if we are to continue to prioritize inclusivity, we might need to reorientate some of our principles of operation. Uh, here, let me give an example from a digital inclusion campaign that I've been involved in in the past one and a half years. In Singapore, we've already started digital inclusion long ago and rolled out many schemes to enable digital access for households that are low income, elderly, or have disabled members. Yet when circuit breaker happened, we found many households without the necessary resources for children to have home-based learning, among other digital lack. So at the same time that various agencies worked double time to plug the gaps, my colleagues and I went alongside these agencies and community groups and started collecting stories or in research term data of where the gaps are. And we thought together with these agencies and community groups, uh, what can be done to achieve full digital inclusion. I don't have time to discuss our findings and people who are interested to learn more can sign up for our upcoming conference by the Social Service Research Center. That's happening on 15 March. We have a panel on digital access. So, so marketing digression aside, here I will just mention one important principle, which is to consider and test out any new policy on the most vulnerable first before rolling it out. Let me repeat this principle. Consider and test out any new policy on the most vulnerable first before rolling it out. What does this entail? Well, um, as Mr. Lim has pointed out just now, um, in Singapore, we do a good job about holding focus group discussions with different segments of society and get feedback through various channels for new policy ideas. These are good and necessary. However, they're not sufficient for including the most vulnerable because the most vulnerable often don't feel confident to come forward or speak their minds. One alternative is to seek out social service professionals as proxy voices of those they serve. Another is to intentionally identify those who are most vulnerable or excluded from a particular policy and seek out their opinions. But one problem I found in the digital access research is that often the most digitally excluded don't know what they don't know, and they don't see the need for what they don't have because they have somehow managed without. Yet unknown to them, the rest of society is progressing at lightning speed to all things virtual. So while we're talking about leveraging data analytics in order to plan better for citizens' needs, we also must be mindful that the analytics is mostly based on the usage patterns of normative citizens. This excludes the most vulnerable because the most vulnerable are outliers 
or simply missing in the data. Thus, there needs to be parallel efforts to test out new plans on the most vulnerable first before rolling out the plans. I think the Taiwanese Digital Minister Audrey Tang spoke about this at last year's Singapore Perspectives Conference, that in Taiwan, they rolled out 5G technology in the most disadvantaged and rural communities first. Another lens for inclusive city planning, uh, to me, is a relational lens. Of course, underlying every policy is the citizen or the user, but often the focus is too much on that policy agenda, housing policies to house, digital policies to digitalize, the citizen or user, especially the most vulnerable, is sometimes not consulted. Take government or bank portals or mobile apps as an example. Um, they change so quickly and are so fancy that an average person often has difficulty keeping up. There are so many apps to download that these days. Um, personally, my phone now has slowed down tremendously. And when I try to check in using my trace together, it often doesn't work. And I can tell you I'm a minimal user who avoids installing apps on my phone if I can help it. What more lower income who cannot afford high-end phones or change their phones frequently? What more the elderly who have trouble learning to navigate one interface and before you know it, the app has an upgrade and the whole thing looks different. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the people who design these apps or amenities do not have empathy. There's just a limit to how much we can know of another person's experience when we rely on technical expertise alone, and I think uh, Prof earlier talked about how we are in cities increasingly um, more technical specialized, right? So when we rely on programmers to design mobile apps, architects to design low-income rental housing, but do not find out from users or dwellers themselves how their experiences are trying to use those apps or live in that housing, there is danger that the product or service ends up ill-fitted for them at best or exclusive from them at worst. I've given lots of digital access examples because of my research, but we can extend these principles and find examples in other spheres. For example, borrowing from a Facebook post by Anthea Ong, we built ramps for wheelchair-bound persons, but do we check with wheelchair users and their helpers on whether the slopes of those ramps are too steep? We built community centers. Uh, are only certain populations using them? What do we do about that? So yes, we have lots of inclusive spaces, programs, and schemes in our city, but are these initiatives accessible, useful, helpful, especially to the least included? Hopefully, a relational lens enables us to go beyond availability and really think from users' perspectives whether the initiatives make sense for them in the first place. Um, in this IPS event, both Mr. Joshua and Minister Ong Yi Kung spoke of cities as networks and connectivity. As we plan for Singapore as a global city connected to the rest of the world, I'm glad this session reminds us that our city should also connect the least connected in our society. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Irene. Um, I think it is really interesting and, and certainly important that you know, we have to think about inclusivity, not just for the normative citizens, but as well as when, you know, for marginalized, the most marginalized and, and also the most uh, excluded groups and vulnerable groups in Singapore as well. So before we go into uh, questions and answer session, um, I'd like to remind everyone again uh, of the online poll. Uh, we're going to open the online poll again so that you can go in. Uh, it's on the right side of your screen uh, to go in and take the online poll um, for URA's uh, long-term plan review. So now um, we're going to question and answers. Um, I have a first question here. Um, 
a top voted question. Um, I believe uh, this question, I think, is for both speakers. Uh, you can take this question. So this question is from uh, Dr. Jiden Cole. Um, and it goes like this. Singapore is a city-state that depends so much on a foreign workforce, which is going to be even more critical coming out of the pandemic. As we rush to build homes and infrastructures, and her question is this, what are new ways to make this greater than 1 million people, I assume she meant the foreign workforce, feel at home here? Perhaps uh, I address this question to Mr. Lim first. Uh, thanks, Harry and the uh, uh, children for the question. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, if we look at the, the size of Singapore, if you consider the, the needs of Singapore and the potential opportunities that we want to see, uh, clearly, I think we need to uh, continue to tap on the, the, the talent pool beyond the Singapore. So we will, I think we will continue to see uh, for, uh, many uh, foreign friends uh, coming to Singapore, playing a part uh, in, in building homes, in participating in our economy. Uh, but uh, it's, it's an open question uh, in the coming uh, decades, and so, what will be the makeup uh, of this uh, foreign workforce that will uh, remain in Singapore? And whether, whether they will uh, come here just to work or whether some of them will end up seeking their roots and make Singapore a part of their home. So I think it's, it's for us to shape this. It, uh, there are many uh, variables and factors that will affect this eventuality, uh, how our economy will continue to transform uh, in the coming decades, uh, and therefore the skill sets that we need uh, and what complement uh, that we need uh, drawing from the, the talent that's outside of Singapore uh, will determine the, the kind of uh, uh, people that would uh, uh, move uh, uh, to Singapore and live among us. And I think, uh, uh, as I mentioned in some of my uh, sharing earlier, uh, as we plan, we have to make sure that uh, the facilities uh, and the, the various uh, needs uh, to cater for the future uh, people, who, residents who are living in Singapore, whatever the background you are, whether you are Singaporeans or foreigners, uh, we will, should try to uh, anticipate the needs and try to cater uh, for all segments as far as possible. Uh, very hard to go down to specific to pinpoint uh, exactly what these are. But I think uh, if we just use park as an example, uh, it's, it's a, a, a very inclusive space. Uh, it's open to everyone uh, to enjoy. And I think the overall objective is to make sure that we uh, try to plan and make provision for parks in almost all corners of Singapore. Uh, and besides just making sure that you have access to a park, uh, we're trying to make park an inclusive space where people can come together, interact, and, and create a bond and uh, hopefully generate a, a better understanding uh, of uh, a different uh, segment of the society. Uh, and among all the park spaces, one of the spaces I love most is the real corridor. I think it's a, it's a wonderful example how we can uh, try to, uh, how we have been trying to, first, uh, as Erin mentioned, when we try to create a space, think of a different user's perspective. So I think for, uh, for the real corridor, when the land was returned to Singapore, uh, we did not jump in straight away to you know, uh, uh, incorporate this into the, uh, the adjoining land and redevelop uh, it as part and parcel of the, uh, our, land, uh, our, our land inventory. But we take time to, uh, uh, to engage Singaporeans and uh, uh, people who are interested in this uh, uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic space to try and uh, imagine what could be the possibility. How can we uh, take advantage of this very rare opportunity and create something that's so unique to Singapore? And after many years of uh, engagement and, and uh, uh, consultations and uh, workshops, uh, including talking to uh, many people who live along that uh, corridor, I think the, the consensus is we should create this 
uh, uh, we should retain the real line and um, turn it into an inclusive uh, green spaces, a green corridor that's uh, inclusive, allow everybody to come into it to enjoy. So over the past few years, we've been the, we've established the continuous uh, trail now. I think if you use it, you'll see that it's really a very inclusive space. Uh, the, the, by the way, the real corridor uh, runs through seven towns across the island, 24 kilometers. Uh, and it, it runs through very different neighborhood from you know, private housing estate to public housing estates uh, from the north to the south. And I think uh, we are taking time to also engage the uh, community along the entire corridor to find out what makes sense for them, uh, what, uh, uh, where are the additional access uh, that could be added to uh, improve the accessibility to this wonderful space. And when they can access to the real corridor, it is not just a park space near home. They can now access the entire Singapore, just taking advantage of the real corridor. So I thought it is uh, uh, there are, there are a few few points there. I think the engaging. Uh, I think uh, Irene mentioned some of this. Uh, whatever we do, uh, we plan or design, try to engage uh, as diverse a segment of the community that we are planning for as possible, uh, including uh, uh, many of the, including the silent majority that normally don't uh, speak out, uh, including minority who are uh, maybe uh, sometimes forgotten, but also vulnerable groups that uh, sometimes may not uh, step forward and. and uh, to participate in, participate in some of this discussion. I think those are very valid points. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lin. Um, perhaps uh, over to you, Professor Irene. Um, how do we, you know, make this group of foreign workers uh, or foreign workforce feel included in Singapore? Mm. I, I struggle over this as well. And I, I think about it um, in terms of two, I think, important contexts. One is inequality. Inequality in the world Right, in a sense of our migrant uh, community coming to us from less uh, advanced economies and inequality within Singapore, which is um, wide, you know, especially considering between the wealthier segments in Singapore and the migrant workers themselves. Um, the other context is in terms of marginal benefits and costs. Um, because we are so reliant on this large group, and I think Julian's question alludes to this, is almost a million, dollar, a million uh, people, right? So um, when you have such a big group, I think the tensions are, are very strong. So to me, what needs to happen to, in Singapore going forward is to reduce that reliance on foreign workers. And there we can then spend more in terms of costs in improving their living conditions, in including them into our society. Um, and I personally feel that we do need to um, Im improve physical, economic and social um, conditions for a migrant community. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's an issue at the end of the day about them as humans who should be equal to us um, because by segregating them it, and limiting them to certain things that the rest of us in Singapore don't have to face, it's as if they are a subhuman, you know, a different kind of humans from us. Right? And in this COVID-19 has, has drawn that up very clearly. You know, they, we had a, a different set of rules for them Right, in terms of restrictions, and they're still restricted in terms of um, in, uh, coming out into a community for those that are um, living in the dormitories, right? And that's because we built these dormitories um, and house so many of them, right? So it's all intermixed. Um, it's not easy to just say, oh, we should allow them to come out, right? Yeah, and um, in, in the digital space, where we now know that they have to do trace together and reporting and, and all that, 
And in the beginning, a lot of them didn't even have smartphones, you know, and, and they don't have the language also to use those technology. So, I mean, going forward, if I think about it, if we need them to come and work for us, then I, to me, employers need to provide this kind of resources to them and that they, they shouldn't have to buy a, a mobile phone which costs at least $100, you know, and which is a lot of their salary. Thank you, Professor Harvey. Um, the next set of questions, I'll combine the next two questions because uh, both questions are addressed to UR, I mean to Mr. Lin, um, it focuses on URA. So um, the first question is this, um, what is URA's position on the use of defensive, hostile architecture? And how does that fit in with our idea of an inclusive city? And then the second question um, is this, Singapore is getting crowded. And what are URA's plans in creating space and making it more livable with a rising population? Mr. Lim. Uh, thanks for the question. I suppose hostile architecture uh, means, uh, uh, you know, how, how do we prevent uh, uh, many, too many gated uh, communities or gated uh, spaces, uh, spaces that prevent or block out certain groups of the, the uh, community? Uh, I, I, I think if you look at what has been happening the past uh, a decade or two, uh, we, we have been uh, trying uh, all over the island uh, start to insert uh, a lot more public spaces, uh, not, not just park, but uh, generally public spaces, even in private uh, development. Uh, this, these are your, I mean, and there are a few very good examples that how these spaces have turned out. In, in the city area, the most prime of all uh, spaces uh, uh, across island, we have set aside 100 hectares of uh, uh, space, uh, turning into our uh, National Botanic Garden, and it's uh, the, the most visited uh, uh, sp green spaces uh, in Singapore. And uh, most of the spaces are uh, uh, accessible uh, for free, except the uh, two uh, glass dome. Uh, and, and I think uh, the, the gardens has been uh, has all sorts of scheme to make uh, those uh, uh, entry uh, as accessible to as many people as possible as well. Uh, but besides the park spaces, uh, there are many plaza spaces in uh, commercial mixed-use development. I mean, where my office is, uh, just uh, right in front of my <laughs> outside my window, I could see the Tanjong Plaza Center. You know, with a very nice uh, public plaza. Uh, which is part of the uh, uh, part of the requirement when the site was put up for tender to require the developer and the designer to design the publicly accessible space that is conducive for programming for all sorts of activities and going beyond the, just the physical attribute uh, in terms of uh, making available the space we are also uh, moving on to the next step uh, which is uh, the, the the human site the human uh, uh, element uh, which is for us to now engage many of the stakeholders in various parts of the island to get the stakeholders to come on board and uh, working together uh, among the community, among the stakeholders, and together with the government agencies. And UI is prepared to uh, help, uh, uh, in a way, lead the efforts uh, amongst agencies to work with the stakeholders, uh, make use of the many of these opportunities, the public spaces that has been created to program, to uh, organize activities, programs, uh, uh, and uh, help to create a, a lot more vibrant uh, society. Uh, I suppose when it comes to home, it's uh, a lot more uh, tricky. Uh, for 80% uh, of the homes in Singapore, which are our HDB flats, is completely uh, non-gated, porous. Uh, everybody have access to it. Uh, but I think in the case of uh, private housing, uh, condominium, for example, they are mostly gated. So question is whether we, even for the very, uh, uh, for the uh, private housing, for the more exclusive uh, private housing, are there ways to encourage design to make it uh, 
uh, uh, more welcoming. Uh, we are we're trying to do that, but trying to see whether we can uh, uh, encourage design that are, uh, uh, in a way, non-gated, or at least feels like it's non-gated, or part of it uh, is accessible. I think you are, there, there are a few examples already, especially for mixed-use development. Uh, and then I think there was a question on the, how do we deal with the overcrowding. Uh, okay. uh, again, we, there, are, uh, there are many strategies we try to do to deal with the, uh, uh, the pressure of uh, you know, increasing demand for land. So firstly, we have to try and optimize where we can, uh, building higher where, if it is possible, but not to the extent that it becomes uh, suffocating uh, in terms of our built environment. Uh, building underground, I think in the uh, previous uh, sessions, there was some talk about it as well, uh, so that we can, we can get rid of some of the things that don't need to take up land space. Uh, many of these are infrastructure related users. Uh, the, the latest uh, uh, the 230 KV substations at Labrador uh, is one such example, moving above ground, humongous, uh, somewhat ugly looking structure underground. They can free up the ground space uh, for people to live, whether it's a park space or a space that meet our living needs. So these are some of the approach where we can minimize uh, our footprint. Uh, but beyond that, uh, in terms of uh, you know creativity, innovation, and uh, ingenuity in creating uh, the, our built environment, there are ways to design to make it feel uh, a lot more uh, uh, humanistic. I mean, uh, I always admire uh, some of our Japanese uh, the, uh, architects. Uh, they, are, they are very good at, at doing this. Uh, you know, Japan is a very uh, uh, concentrated, high-density uh, city. But if you go to their uh, downtown area, which has the highest, uh, one of the highest density in the world, many of the buildings are designed with human in mind. So where human interact with the building, you try to create pockets of uh, open spaces to uh, create that relief. You try to integrate greenery, which is one aspect I think the Singapore uh, designers are doing very well now, integrating greenery into the building uh, uh, for to, to create a, a lot more lush uh, environment. So I think there are uh, many uh, things that we can do to deal with a, a, a density and a, a crowding issue. Uh, for high density society like Singapore, I think this is very important, how we optimize the use of space, how do we pay attention to detail to, uh, to make it feel much less dense than it, act it actually is. So I'll just uh, stop here. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Mr. Lin. Yeah, um, maybe I'll take on, um, maybe extend that first question a little bit on, on defensive architecture as well. I think perhaps the audience would also like to find out uh, when we talk about defensive architecture, and there was a, a debate, uh, I think, in, in, in the media about the, you mentioned public spaces, but, and part of the debate on defensive architecture is, is you know, putting defenses on, on things like public benches. The rationale, I understand, is um, to a certain extent, you know, for elderly people to, you know, just to lift up themselves up, and, and it's good for elderly people. Uh, I wonder what's your view on this? I mean, because for some other people, it could be, you know, from some others, it becomes a form of defensive architecture, something that is not friendly for others to use. What are your thoughts on that? Can I respond to that? Just a, a short, quick response. Yep. Uh, I, I think whether it's park benches or any other uh, urban elements, uh, the most critical thing is uh, think, uh, whatever we are building or designing, try to think from the user perspective. I'm not sure whether it is possible to design something that meets 100% of everybody's needs. I should think about who might be the uh, people, uh, given the location, given the function that it is playing, who are the most likely users, uh, and then the, the try to cater as much as possible uh, to the user's need. Uh, I really like uh, Irene's earlier point made about uh, consulting people and talking to people who are uh, uh, most relevant. 
not forgetting the, the vulnerable and the, and the minority group. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure whether we can cater 100% to everybody. At least we should be conscious of who are the potential users and try to minimize uh, any obstacle in creating that uh, urban element. Thank you, Mr. Lin. Um, we'll move on to the next question. Uh, this next question is from Dr. Uh, Wu Jinchi. So uh, JJ is asking this, um, how do we balance between heritage, conservation, and our future land use needs? Can we develop more new use for heritage buildings while at the same time retaining their historical significance and unique architecture design? So I think this, this question is, is, I think, a juxtaposition between, you know, um, our, keeping our heritage as well as, you know, keeping up with pace with modernity. So um, perhaps I'll, I'll let uh, Professor Irene um, address this. I'm not sure I'm an expert on heritage. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I think a larger point, even the earlier point about defensive architecture is really there's always tensions. And I think throughout when I listen to Mr. George Yeo, Mr. Liu Taika and Mr. Ong Yikang, you know, there's always contradictions in the city and we'll always have to grapple with these. Um, and to me, um, the maybe the question to ask as we think about the balances is the pace of development that a global city such as Singapore needs to have. Because when we grow very fast, and I think there was a criticism with regard to some of these old buildings in the past is we needed to grow so fast we tore a lot of things down and we lost part of that heritage right so at this point where Singapore is a mature society mature economy how do we balance this better and can we think about a different mode of development that it doesn't have to be fast all the time it doesn't have to be based on population and manpower and building more and building more how can we um, think of productivity and value adding per person, per what project, you know, per unit. Yeah. Mr. Lin? Yes, uh, uh, a very uh, important uh, question, uh, and I think it's uh, very critical uh, at uh, this stage of our development. Uh, I would say that uh, heritage, uh, greenery are both uh, very key aspects uh, of the consideration as we uh, go about uh, thinking about uh, how we should be building Singapore in time to come. I mean, for me, a city uh, has no soul, no character if everything is new or concrete. Right? So I think the uh, question is how can we develop and build a city uh, at, uh, and in the process uh, try to retain what uh, has been uh, built, uh, those with the long history, those who are, uh, which are very special, those that showcase certain milestones of our, our uh, a journey uh, as a nation uh, and so on. So I think uh, absolutely important. Question is, uh, like Irene said, uh, how, how, how do we uh, decide which are important and to what extent, uh, how much of this uh, should be kept? Uh, obviously, having more time helps. Uh, I mean, every city, every society will evolve over time. So what, what is relevant at one point in time, you know, after uh, several decades, maybe they are less relevant. But is there opportunity for us to adapt, put them to adaptive use? Uh, new function, meeting new needs without completely re remove them from our cityscape. I think certainly there are such opportunities. Uh, uh, if we look, take a look at Singapore, uh, given our uh, size, given the kind of uh, uh, land uh, needs that we have to meet uh, as a city, as a country, uh, and uh, having uh, retained uh, more than 7,000 uh, buildings 
uh, having uh, given the, the legal protection, I think it's not not a not an easy uh, task for many of the uh, many generation of the planners before me that has been working on this. I think it's quite uh, I would say quite quite a, an achievement for a very small uh, tiny city state with uh, very very little uh, land resource. I think we have done uh, 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 not too badly in terms of uh, keeping conserving our heritage. Uh, the the challenge now uh, going forward is uh, as uh, Singapore mature. Uh, as a city, after 50, 60 years uh, of history, uh, there are even newer buildings that has come of age. Uh, how can we give uh, uh, allow time for some of these buildings to even mature further? And uh, selectively for some of the buildings that are very special, uh, with very strong social memory, with very unique uh, architecture, uh, can we find a way to, to retain them? Directionally, I think we, we hope we'll be able to do so. We hope we can work with uh, many stakeholders, including the owners themselves, to find ways to, to make it work. The recent uh, example of Golden Mall is one, one uh, such an example. We spent uh, many years talking to uh, both the owners and potential uh, parties who might be interested uh, in retaining uh, the thing, such a building. We talked to many interest groups, many people who are absolutely passionate about Golden Mall uh, on how, what, what are some of these possibilities and how can we address some of the concerns and issues that the owners might be uh, facing and try to uh, uh, find some solution to address those concerns. We are very happy that we have been able to now gazette the building as a conserved building and continue to work with both the owners and the potential stakeholders that might have an interest in the building to make it work. So, so I like the point that Irene made as well, that you know we might want to think about the pace of development and redevelopment going forward so that Selectively, some of these important uh, landmarks can be retained, even as we continue to evolve as a city. Thank you, Mr. Lim. So, picking up on that point, you know that you know thinking about our pace of development. Uh, I I have a next question here that actually leads on to that. Um, it's from Dr. Pfizer. So, in what ways do inclusive, livable plans? When we talk about plans, in what ways do they account for the impact on? And that's the first point, the impact on. And the second point, um, how, they, how these plans can benefit the underbelly of global cities. And I think Dr. Pfizer here refers to the migrant workers, labor, and I guess um, also from Professor Irene, what she was talking about earlier in terms of vulnerable groups of people, right? So in what ways do these inclusive plans account for the impact on and whether these plans actually do benefit those you know marginalized vulnerable groups in our in our meets. Um, and he finished off this question with this: Do the plans consider those that do not fit heteronormative ideals? Um, perhaps um, Professor Irene. Sorry, Harry. Can I clarify what plans uh, is Faisal talking about? Um, he mentions inclusive, I, I guess, city planning, uh, inclusive yes. plans, livable plans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, if I try and interpret it <laughs> in mm. my own way. Um, the reason why when I shared, I talked about definition of inclusivity is because in doing the digital inclusion research, I realized that we do have a lot of, we, we do say digital inclusion a lot. Right. But then I realized that it means different things to different people. And in the end, some of the things where in the social space, when working with 
those who are most digitally excluded, it just doesn't make sense to them, you know? So um, maybe Faisal is alluding to that, that, it, I mean, it, and it's the nature of policy making that is for the whole nation. You need it to be relevant to the whole population and policy making also needs to be fast, right? Especially in the space of digitalization, for example, you know, we have to keep up um, for a global city. Um, so um, we, we might then quickly roll things out, but then that does leave the underbelly, those who don't have the access uh, behind. Yeah. So in, as I share about our digital inclusion research, um, we sometimes get asked this question, you know, in trying to help the excluded come on board, will we slow down the rest of Singapore? you know, in digitalization, because, you know, this is so key in today's global world. But then that's the point. If we continue to be so fast and keep leaving this group further and further behind, then there is a real problem in this city, Singapore, where what I estimate to be about 10% who are excluded in, you know, um, plus minus, right? And, and, and that inequality, that gap, will be um, a problem for our city in the future. Thanks. Mr. Lim, perhaps you could address that question as well. So in what ways do inclusive plans, right? We talk about a lot about, you know, UI's inclusive plans. In what ways do they account for the impact, you know, and of course, um, for those who are vulnerable as well as, do they really benefit from these plans? How do they, how do they benefit from these plans? Yeah, it's a, uh, quite a complex uh, the, the issue uh, to address. But I think if you uh, try to think of it simply, uh, and, and uh, since I'm a, a planner, I'll just uh, look at it uh, uh, from a planner's perspective. How, how can we plan a city that allows Singapore to continue to grow in a sustainable way and continue to provide a good, good quality living environment uh, uh, for, for our people uh, in the future? Uh, so it all, and, and I think indeed uh, some of this feedback come from our earlier engagement, engagement uh, exercise with us uh, Singaporeans, what really matters to them? Uh, what, what should we be thinking about? What's our aspiration? It, it really boils down to quite basic uh, fundamentals. Can we continue to offer uh, good jobs for our people, uh, good opportunities for them to progress uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, make better life uh, in, the, in the coming years and decades? Uh, and, and as we do that, uh, can we make sure that we can continue to have uh, comfortable, affordable homes uh, for them and for their future generation, have good accessibility to many things that they need. So I think uh, for, for planning, this is what we have been trying to grapple with and try to uh, 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 make provision for as far as possible. Uh, if we can do uh, this well, uh, uh, find space and structure in a way that uh, uh, continue to provide good quality living environment, I think generally overall, Everyone should benefit uh, from such a, a progress made. Uh, uh, surely there will be some some good that may not progress just as fast. Then I think we will need uh, to have different uh, policy uh, initiative, different uh, programs, different uh, players uh, coming together to identify some of these vulnerable group and uh, 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 find ways and means to help them uh, level up. Whether it's in terms of uh, making sure that they have uh, good equal access uh, uh, to opportunities, making sure that uh, they have uh, access to good education or skill. Uh, upgrading program so that they don't get uh, left behind. They can uh, continue to uh, make uh, take advantage of the opportunities that have been create, created. 
Thank you, Mr. Lim. So hey, I have. No, I, I was just uh, yeah. thinking uh, whether I should uh, uh, whether I should uh, uh, share about the, my own personal experience. I mean, if I look at my own uh, family uh, history, uh, my uh, my my parents came from a very humble background. Uh, when, uh, uh, when we grew up, we were uh, how many of us? Nine or ten of us living in the in the uh, rent control uh, property, which is uh, a, a single room. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, with with some help from the community group, from the government, uh, through uh, various uh, scholarship bursary, uh, almost every one of us, uh, five siblings, every one of us managed to make it through the education. At least we acquired basic uh, uh, skill sets that we need to find opportunities as as we grow old. Uh, and if I look back, uh, how far we have come, how far my parents have come, I think we have all made uh, progress. At one point in time, we were probably at the bottom of the society. Uh, but if there are enough opportunities out there, if we are willing to try and uh, uh, see some of these opportunities, I think uh, that, that, that there will be uh, opportunities for uh, everyone to make that uh, progress. Thank you, Mr. Lin. Well, I have you here. I have another question for you. Um, and this question relates to uh, inclusivity in terms of disability. So while we see, and the question goes like this, while we see some improvements over the years, um, how can we improve accessibility for those who are on wheelchairs? Can I jump jump in on this? Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think uh, to make uh, Singapore really an uh, accessible city for all, uh, it, it, uh, it, in, in reference to the question that was raised, I, I think it takes everyone's effort. Every one of us need to be mindful of the needs of different uh, segments of society, uh, including planners, including designers, including builders, uh, so that we are more mindful about the very different need uh, and where that lands as far as possible. Many of my uh, colleagues in URA, uh, uh, architects, urban designer planners, I think increasingly uh, I have seen them uh, doing several uh, runs, you know, even going on site uh, a wheelchair, try to uh, move around the ground to understand what it really means uh, and, and uh, identify the gaps. I think one uh, uh, effort that is right now ongoing uh, is to form, form a work group uh, with uh, 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 participation of uh, uh, people with a disability, uh, with some professionals, uh, to do an audit of different places. Uh, I, I think it will take uh, many years, maybe even decades, to be able to iron out many kinks. Uh. But I think that the effort has started. Uh, right now, there are already uh, uh, rules and uh, policies in place to make sure that anything that is built, new things that are built, they are uh, universal access is a requirement. But I think you have to go down to a very detailed consideration, not just uh, complying with all rules. Uh. So I think that there's a, an exercise now to uh, conduct audit involving uh, people uh, who understand this very well uh, to pick up where the gaps are. And hopefully over time, we can then bridge some of these gaps. Uh. Uh, in parallel with that effort, we are also trying to do a crowdsourcing. Uh, first, uh, mapping out various pathways that are uh, that exists in Singapore. This include, you know, shortcuts within the HDB estate, uh, both through void decks. You can, I mean, for, for us to walk extra mile, not quite a big concern, but for a person on wheelchair, if you have to run the extra 500 meter, one kilometer, it means a lot. So we're trying to understand where are the various pathways uh, that exist today, uh, where, are, uh, where are the, the shortest uh, pathway uh, to get to some of these uh, essential uh, uh, amenities and facilities that most people want to uh, it wouldn't access to, then to identify the shortest pathway and then try to uh, bridge gaps along those pathways. Uh, hopefully over time, we can then create a network of pathways that are uh, very accessible to any person uh, and uh, leading them to places that they most likely will need to go to. Thank you, Mr. Lin. 
Um, we have time for, I think, one or two more questions. Uh, I'm going to combine a few questions uh, and then uh, probably address it to both of you. Uh, so we have one question uh, earlier on that talks about this, and I really like this question. Uh, it talks about this idea of, we have been talking about inclusivity um, and addressing a lot of tangible aspects of inclusivity. So for example, we are talking about physical spaces, how we use the land, uh, our land use, and, and also economic opportunity or economic opportunities. Um, and Arna Thiel, actually, uh, this person who asked this question, asked how might we consider intangible aspects of inclusivity? For example, ideas, cultural values, which might be left behind or forgotten. So um, I think, I'll, so how, how the first part of this question, I think we can address this together. The first part, how might we consider intangible aspects of inclusivity? And then uh, I'll combine this question with uh, Professor Tan Enser's question uh, on, uh, and he asked this, let me just get this question up. So Professor Tan Enser asked, what do you think is needful to turn mere lip service about promoting inclusivity and livability into reality? How do we turn, you know, what we just discussed into reality? So, um, Mr. Lim or Irene, uh, uh, Professor Irene, I'll let either one of you go first. Maybe I can go first and Mr. Lim can follow up. Um, yeah, in fact, just now when uh, Mr. Lim was answering about wheelchairs, I was thinking about what I think would be the intangible aspect, which is we can change the physical environment, but what about the social environment? How open are people, commuters to a wheelchair person going up and down the buses so there's do we get very impatient and and so the intangible aspect in terms of the social side of it and with regard to cultural ideas um, I, I've learned that it means we have to come together and talk about things not avoid talking about them not uh, avoid um, engaging in those difficult conversations yeah so, and, and in those conversations, um, to me, as much as possible, it shouldn't be closed or within similar people, but to have a diverse group of people so we have the opportunity to hear what the other side is saying about a, a, a same issue. Yeah. Um, and um, with regard to Ansa's question on what's needful to change from lip service to reality, um, that's why in my earlier sharing, I talked about how to build into our policy testing of designs with vulnerable excluded groups first, right? Because um, ultimately in policymaking, when we need to be fast, we just say the ones with the most expertise do it and just go out. But then when it comes to the population, there will be groups that for which it doesn't make sense. So in some countries in policy, they have included in every committee, someone from uh, you know, the user who is in those committees and, and that user might have to represent from not just the elite of among the users. For example, if elderly, it's not just the elderly who actually have the means to get around, you know, but an elderly who may be disadvantaged. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Irene. Uh, Mr. Lim, your thoughts? Yeah, I actually had the same uh, point I wanted to uh, respond uh, as uh, I win. Uh, I, I think it takes two hands to clap. I think it's a city uh, for all of us. It's our city. 
So I think to shape it in a way that uh, makes sense, whether it embraces uh, cultural value ideas from everyone, uh, every segment of society, I think it takes everyone to, to achieve that. And I, 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 uh, I, should, I must say that uh, the, the government as a whole, uh, across all the agencies and URA, uh, which, which I, I know very well, over the uh, last uh, three decades, you can see a shift in the way uh, we are working, the approach that we are, uh, whether it's crafting policy, making plans, implementing projects, uh, really, I think we are we are not just opening up. We are actively going out to try and involve people as far as possible. The real corridor example that I, I mentioned earlier, it uh, I, it has been quite a few years, but I can't quite remember correctly. But I think it took us uh, two three years of uh, 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 almost nonstop engagement, talking to uh, so many people, which I lost count, probably in, in tens of thousands, to just listen to people to understand the need uh, before we decide what what to do yet. The, the current long-term plan, uh, which is to uh, about envisioning what the future of Singapore uh, should be like, what are the important issues to consider, uh, what uh, could be the trade-off, how can we uh, find ideas and strategies that can deal, achieve some of this uh, uh, vision that uh, uh, was drawn out, uh, as well as deal with some of the trade-off uh, that uh, surfaces. Uh, you know, we have uh, so far uh, polled 6,000 or so people. We have uh, over the last uh, many months, we have uh, reached, I think, probably close to 20,000 uh, people. Uh, some physically, uh, as in we come together uh, in, in, in small groups to discuss or, you know, over uh, online. Uh, so I, I think uh, there's certainly effort for government agencies to reach out, to listen to different segments of society. And we are quite conscious, not just talk to a few professional bodies, a few interest groups, but really people on the ground. And what is comforting is uh, from my own engagement, which is ongoing almost every week, most time it's on the weekend. And even if it falls on the weekend, we see uh, people you know, writing in, signing up, wanting to participate. And the energy level in all the discussion has been so high. People are very passionate, very willing to uh, give their view, uh, add their views, and also willing to listen to others. And when we curate that discussion, consciously we put people of different backgrounds sitting in the same uh, smaller group to have that discussion. So that uh, there's, uh, I hope that it is a process, not just for us to draw feedback, but also for uh, the society as a whole, for Singaporeans as a whole, uh, having been involved in many of these exercises, you also then get a better sense of a uh, different perspective, different needs and different uh, challenges that different uh, segments of society faces. Uh, I think that kind of process uh, certainly is, uh, 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 should be the way forward. It helps us to uh, get to a point where we can really create a, a more inclusive society. But beyond just talking, the last point I wanted to make is beyond just talking, I think we all have to take action. Right. After uh, sitting down talking about it, I think when we start uh, going into implementation, uh, hopefully everyone uh, can, can uh, take ownership of the issue and uh, take part in, in co-creating uh, uh, the, the, whatever the solution is, uh, whether it's implementing physical space or in you know, doing, uh, uh, crafting the final uh, policy or regulations that may determine how your particular neighborhood uh, may look like. We are prepared to you know, talk to local community and able to see whether, uh, forget about the existing rule, we need to know of what, what are the, uh, the uh, safety issues and so on. But you know, can we review the rules to create the estate that uh, the residents themselves feel that uh, they want to, how they want to shape their, uh, their, their own estate? Uh, so I think, uh, uh, and I think uh, I'm very glad also the last uh, few years we've been uh, uh, working on this uh, place uh, management uh, uh, place making place uh, management initiative uh, for a few years now, talking to local stakeholders, including community and uh, uh, business uh, operators in many uh, precincts around the city and outside the city, uh, trying to understand what are the needs, what are the opportunities, and how the, the different segment of the society, the government sector, the people sector, business sector can come together 
to to uh, introduce activities and programs and change the environment in a way that uh, makes sense for them, uh, all of them, whether you are the operator or the user of the area. And again, I must say that the uh, very gratifying to see that there are many very passionate people who are willing to uh, spend their time, even spend their own resources to make the place a, a better place, not just uh, for themselves, for the <laughs> increasing the revenue, but to see the community coming together to enjoy the place. Thank you, Mr. Lin. Uh, perhaps you have time for what, just one last question. And I think it's quite apt that we round up this session with what Professor Sesson was talking about, the idea of a global city, right? So this question uh, by Jason Lau talks about um, transnationalism and especially transnational mobility. So uh, the last question, I mean, this last question is, goes like this. As transnational mobility becomes easier in this world, there'll be more temporary transitional guests foreign students, foreign workers. Conversely, Singaporeans are also working, studying abroad. How do we manage this transitory nature of global citizens in our city? Um, I'll let either one of you take the question. Okay, I'll go first. Mr. Lim can round off. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was reflecting also on processes um, concept on transnationalism and um, one aspect is actually digitalization has really transcended this right that's beyond the state and so one thing that needs to happen is in the digital space how do we then engage whether a Singaporean overseas or um, an overseas person I mean um, a, 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 a person of a different citizenship who, who is in Singapore yeah, and increasingly, I do think that um, we should um, think about not just the notion of citizens, but um, residents, be it digital residents or um, physical residents of Singapore, of which then migrant communities too, right? Uh, we should be rethinking about where they stand with the with respect to the rest of us, right? Because now we have such clear divides of citizens, permanent residents, and then residents of different visas and work statuses. Um, but I think in thinking about transnational global cities, the, the boundaries will blur. And to me, from a social perspective, then thinking of humanity at a global level and, and not just citizen versus non-citizen, that's exciting to me. Thank you, Professor Irene. Mr. Lim, for you to wrap. Yeah, I'll just make a short uh, comment. Uh, uh, I, I think the uh, future embedded in the question is uh, very exciting. Question is how can we work it uh, to our advantage? Uh? Being small, uh, but if we have the ability to tap the global minds, whether it's uh, physical or digital, uh, I, I think uh, we can uh, use it to our advantage. I think important consideration will be uh, we, we need to find a way to identify what, uh, what shapes our identity and character. How can we endear Singaporeans to, to, to Singapore, even if they are not physically present in Singapore? And as we uh, build up the city, as we continue to develop and grow, make sure that we don't lose, find ways to enhance and strengthen those identity and character, even as we develop. Thank you. Uh, I think we're coming very rapidly towards the end of our time. So I, I think we had a great discussion here. And I'd like to thank um, the speakers and our panel, uh, Mr. Lin Meng Hui uh, and also Saint Professor Irene Ng. So 
a round of applause uh, if we can do that to for everyone. Yeah, um, I, I think we I, I leave this discussion with uh, I think a, a few key points. Uh. The the idea that you know when we look at inclusivity, it's not just about tangible aspects of our city, but also the soul of our city, so to speak, the intangible aspects of our city. And uh, I, I take the point that was made earlier on that, you know, when we look at inclusivity, it's not just for, you know, normative citizens or just not just for citizens, but also for the most vulnerable, the most excluded in our, in our means. And finally, the, the, the force of transnationalism in, in our world today is, is unavoidable that, you know, it forces us to think beyond just, you know, into uh, designing a city just for our citizens. We have to engage, you know, people from all over the world and guests from all over the world as well. So um, may I bring this session to a close and once again convey uh, thanks to all our panelists uh, and also to uh, Professor Saskia Sassen for sense of regards um, and all of you for joining in um, and contributing to this wonderful discussion. The video of today's uh, session will be available on the online platform for two weeks if you would like to review it again. Again, thank you all on the panel and please accept our sincere thanks. We now take a short lunch break. The next session today is entitled City as a Cosmopolitan Space and it starts at 2 p.m. Singapore time. We look forward to seeing you there. Goodbye and good afternoon. Thank you.